So I went into what I later found out to be one of the toughest school in the West Midlands. You know, literally the rats carry flick knives and the pigeons wore stab jackets in the corridor. And they chewed me up and spat me out, Andy. But rather than what previously would have happened, which would have been me giving up and going, oh, well, I tried, I, I said, right then, I need to be better. And I went back not seeking approval and applause. I went back seeking serving them to the best of my ability instead. And that was just like the biggest floodlight or light bulb going off in my life. When you go to serve rather than seek approval and applause and just be the biggest and the best version of yourself you can be in service to others, that's when you have an impact. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. I have got a very good friend of mine joining me today. He is someone who I have known for probably as long as almost anyone else I know in the speaking profession. I joined the Professional Speakers Association uh, as it was then in 2003. And one of the first meetings I went to was in Birmingham, where I would have met this wonderful human being. And like me, he has stuck around ever since for some strange reason. He is a researcher and speaker who's given over 12 million delegates the skills and confidence to set and achieve bigger goals in life and business. He works across most sectors, ranging from education to senior business leaders. And in all he does, and if you've ever met him, if you've ever worked with him, you'll know this, he strives to have as much fun as possible. I mentioned helping people set and achieve bigger goals. We are going to talk about goal setting and why smart goals don't work. But we're going to, I think, have a wide ranging discussion knowing Dave, because as I say, he works with groups from school kids. He works in so many schools. He's a brilliant school speaker through to senior leaders. And there's so much to learn from those different conversations that he has. So I didn't want to narrow this conversation to just one thing. I just wanted to have a chat with my friend and let you enjoy it. How does that sound as a plan? David Heiner, welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. Cheers, Andy. That sounds great. And in the spirit of fun, I wish I'd done 12 million. It's actually 1.2 million. But <laughs> <laughs> There's me misreading at the very beginning. Why you never read an intro? <laughs> I missed the dot. Um, well, I'm sure that the impact you've had on those people makes it like it was 12 million because you have 10 times the impact on everyone who hears you speak. Smoothie. Uh, <laughs> it's still a pretty impressive number. It's still a pretty impressive number. <laughs> so as I said, I want to have a, a relatively wide ranging discussion with you, but there's something I've seen you speak on a number of occasions. You very kindly spoke at my conference for ambition a few years ago for the local community that I live in, where we raise money for charity. And thank you for that. I saw you speak not three or four weeks ago in Southeast London, in Kent, actually, no, in, in Sussex. And one thing that always strikes me when you speak is the way you talk about smart goals. And, and many people who listen to the Connected Leadership Podcast will, I'm sure, be familiar with smart goals. And you can talk us through that for those that don't. But they are presented as accepted wisdom. Yeah. That we need smart goals. And you challenge that. You don't just challenge it. You smash it down. So let's start with that. What are smart goals and why should people not bother with them? Well, they shouldn't bother with them because they're misquoted and wrongly credited. People have come across SMART or Realistic and Achievable Targets. SMART is an acronym widely assumed to be the domain of a Peter Drucker, a very, very successful, famous business consultant, business management leader. And in one of his books in the very early 1980s, he accredited a lot of his success to SMART goals, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-focused. Actually, that is not the acronym and he didn't come up with it anyway. 
Uh, <laughs> I should explain, Andy, for those who don't know me. I'm from, from Birmingham in the West Midlands in the United Kingdom, and we're not known for being positive. We tend to be quite hesitant, borderline, cynical in our mindset, and very doubting and questioning. So if I'm going to share a theory, I always like to make sure I could back it up if someone challenged me on it. That's partly due to my own insecurities and also out of a desire of service and wanting to be right. So I tracked down the person who invented the acronym SMART, and he was a guy called George T. Duran in the United States, and he was a project manager and university lecturer who worked on multi-billion dollar water utility projects. He never once, in anything he's written or in the only interview I've ever found that exists of him, never once did he say, Andy, that your goal should be SMART. What he actually suggested was that when you're working on really big projects, the steps to your goal should be smart. And that is specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. Now, he's misquoted. He's not even credited most of the time. And if you go to virtually any business school on the planet and say, what's your smart goal theory based on, they will look at you with tumbleweed going through their eyes as, as they just sit there open mouth, not able really to explain. And they will trot out, as you said, you know, it's the perceived wisdom of the time and well, everyone does it because it works. Hardly anyone can ever quote the original source. And if the original source was suggesting we should do really big projects with realistic and achievable steps, who's got it right? And, f- and furthermore, in my own research interviews with top achievers, 258 of them over the last 23 years, and the human me, if you will, I know this is a bit cheesy, but out of 258 top achiever interviews with people all over the world from every walk of life, you could imagine at the highest level, asking them the specific question, how do you set goals? How many of them do you think answer the question by going, ooh, I set realistic and achievable goals? I doubt it's very many. <laughs> Zero. Absolutely not a single one so far has ever used smart, realistic, or achievable in their answer to how do you set goals. The most common word I found used was massive. So I teach people how to set and achieve massive goals. I give them the skills and the confidence to do that. And they tend to get better results. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about your research in a second, but I just want to summarize the, the, the key takeaway for, from what you've just shared. Yeah. Um, and that is it's not smart goals. It's massive goals with smart steps. And I want you to explain that a little bit more in a while, because I think what I'd like to do is for you to outline what you did to talk to all of these high achievers, why you did it, where you came from, and then we'll share that, and then let's have a look at those smart steps to massive goals. Okay. So thank you for asking that question because it always embarrasses me when I have to give the answer because I wish I could say, Andy, that I set out to become a professional speaker. So set out on the body of research for content. And actually the reason I started interviewing successful people to my shame is that I woke up at the age of 30 having strived for and achieved nothing at all. And I was so ashamed of that because I had big goals, dreams, aspirations, And the only reason I hadn't done it was because I was immature and a coward. I was too afraid to have a go in case I failed. I'm still immature. I'm just no longer a coward. I decided to find out what's true. Is it true that I can't do that or is it true that I can? I just need to find a way. But because of my experiences as a kid in education, I was so scared of going back to education in any context that someone suggested to me, well, why don't you ask someone who's happy and successful? And I went, genius. Because my customers at the time, I had a little catering and event business, and my customers were the who's who of Birmingham in the West Midlands. And I started asking some of my obscenely successful customers. These were football club owners, managers, theatre owners, top flight entrepreneurs, captains of industry. I started asking them, how do you think and behave differently to everybody else? How do you set goals? And what they were telling me, Andy, just contradicted everything I'd ever heard. Not one of them mentioned SMART goals. They all thought and behaved very differently to what's traditionally taught, very contrary. But everything they said seemed easy. And they all suggested that as long as you're not afraid of hard work and as long as you're consistent doing the the thoughts and behaviors required that are easy to do, you will become more successful. 
and that's that's why I started interviewing successful people. I became a bit obsessed with how these men and women thought and behaved. My wife would say evangelical about it. I, I was way, way into it. It was like a drug to me. I was just so obsessed with that. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be a catch. It can't be this easy. It can't just be hard work and thinking and behaving like that. But then I started to achieve things using what they taught me. And then people started asking me if I'd go along and speak and tell their teams and their scout group and whatever, <laughs> Rotary Club, how to set goals. I was going, no, 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 not a speaker. No, 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 no. And then a mutual friend of ours, Mary Collin, Mary Collin said, uh, when I interviewed her for my research, she said, David, you must come and share your goal setting process with the charity child line. And I went, no, Mary, no, I'm not a speaker. She went, David, you're coming to share your goal setting process, which I went, okay, Mary. Yeah. So I did it for a train fair and a biscuit. And very humbly, they used my goal setting process and did really, really well with it. And on the back of that, I thought, I need to learn how to present this so I can help people. And it's become, some people trot out the word purpose very lightly. I don't any longer. I became borderline purpose driven to help as many people as I can whilst I'm alive to set and achieve bigger goals. That's a, a really lovely story. And, and I do know that the impact that you have is massive in itself. You have your own massive goals, but the impact you have, as I said, lightheartedly earlier, but I mean, it, you, you know, you do have a huge impact on the people you speak to. I, I think your story of education is really interesting. And, and I was going to talk about this later, but I want to bring it up now because I just can't get past it in my mind to get onto the next thing. I mentioned earlier you speak in a lot of schools, and I know that school work forms a lot of what you do. Like our mutual friend Richard McCann, who's been on the podcast, uh, I hear from both of you stories of pupils that heard you speak when they were at school, and then they'll come up to you 20 years later having been really successful. And, and that, to me, is, is so impactful and so moving, you know, as a speaker myself and an author, that, you know, when what you say sticks with someone for that long and impacts them to that degree i think that's massive but then i picked up in what you just said that due to your own experiences in education you couldn't face going back to education when mm -hmm. you when you were 30 right. so i'm really interested in why you speak in schools what you do in terms of speaking in schools and how that sits with and fits with your own experience of education Wow. Okay. So I was what teachers call the grey child at school. I was immature, middle of the road, average predicted grades, and that's exactly what I got. Mediocrity at best. Yay. Um, I didn't enjoy school because they didn't get me and I didn't get them. You know, I wish I could go back now and do it. But I literally walked out of high school saying, I'm never stepping foot in a school again in my life. And I even said to myself, if ever I have kids, I'm not even going to parents' evening, never, ever going to school again. And then about two years, no, no, not even that, probably only six months into my speaking journey, I remember asking a couple of speakers who I respected, how do you know if you're any good? It's all very well us having this arrogance in our head that we're amazing, look at the difference we made, but how do you know if you're any good? And two of them said, well, if you can hold the audience of teenagers for an hour, you're doing all right if you don't get killed. And I actually took them literally and went, okay. So I went into what I later found out to be one of the toughest schools in the West Midlands. You know, literally the rats carry flick knives and the pigeons wore stab jackets in the corridors. And they chewed me up and spat me out, Andy. But rather than what previously would have happened, which would have been me giving up and going, oh, well, I tried, I, I said, right then, I need to be better. And I went back not seeking approval and applause, I went back seeking serving them to the best of my ability instead. And that was just like the biggest floodlight or light bulb going off of my life. When you go to serve rather than seek approval and applause and just be the biggest and the best version of yourself you can be in service to others, that's when you have an impact because you're not hung up on oh, that person looked at me funny, or oh, they didn't laugh at that joke, or you're absolutely focused on creating impact for as many people in the room as possible. So 
I became a bit obsessed with helping young people, especially those who were like me, the ones who get lost and left behind, you know, capable of incredible things, but never really got tapped into. And now, well, I mean, as you quite rightly said, you know, I've got schools that have used me twice a year for the last 21 years. Just recently, we had uh, a student who said, you won't remember me. I was a student at Dormston School in Sedgley, in Dudley, and I set a massive goal to become a teacher. And when I became a teacher, I was going to let you know that I'd achieved my goal, but I didn't think you'd be interested. So I made a promise that as soon as I'm a senior leader, first budget spend I'm going to have is getting you into the school. And just three weeks ago, <laughs> there I was working for this former student, 20-odd years later, the school in Dagenham, Essex, and it was just one of the most humbling experiences of my life. We've had students get mentored by American presidents. We've had students become millionaires while still in education. Amazon, number one best-selling authors. I could go on and on and on with the things they've done. British, European sporting champions, all setting massive goals. And to me, other than my family, that's my greatest achievement. Just having some small part in helping people do cool stuff. I, I, I want to dig into this a little bit further, but before I do, you talk about this, the former student who said, I didn't think you'd be interested. Yeah. What does it mean to you when someone reaches out one minute, five years, 10, 20 years later and tells you what an impact you had on them? I'm actually, here I am as a professional speaker, I actually almost lost the words there because it's better than money. It's better than anything it it's i mean what a privilege is the word i would use i feel privileged and honored that someone would remember me and but again i come back to that's just because of my i believe my obsession to serve and i don't want to come across as sounding pious or anything but it's actually a huge part of why i do what i do whether i'm working with business leaders corporate conferences or indeed 65 percent of my work in education I, I'm relentless. I will work harder than anybody else to make sure that young people get what they need. That's fantastic. So I said I'd come back to this. What I'd really be interested in is that link between working in schools and working with senior leaders. Yeah. Is there much difference <laughs> between the audiences? What are the big differences you see and what can senior leaders learn from the learning attitude of kids? There's only one difference, Andy, you're absolutely bob on. Only one difference. That's kids walk to school, chief execs drive Land Rovers. That's it. <laughs> they are still having imposter syndrome and insecurities of self-worth. They still haven't got a clue how to set goals. You speak to most business leaders or young kids, they haven't got a clue about personal goals. Hardly any of them, if you say, what's your big goal in life, will put their hand up. Sure, they've got a strategy for their business and kids have got a strategy to pass exams, but hardly anyone knows or has ever been taught how to set goals. They're really similar. You know, you'll get again, I'm sure you've found this both working with businesses that you do, and I know occasionally you go into schools, that teenagers and chief execs are very similar in that they hunt in packs. And if you go to serve them and are really honest and able to show that you're not perfect which is very easy when you look like me little fat guy from Birmingham but they get you and then they trust you and and trust and respect is way better than being liked it's, it's so much easier to work with so business leaders they trust my stuff because I'm just a very normal person like them I'm not a tall slim shiny suited white teeth matching time cufflinks pointy finger speaker I'm a what you see is what you get, and I will challenge you whether you are worth 500 million or whether you're worth 50 pence in your pocket taking your GCSEs. You're having it, and that's my approach. You're having it, and I go in service, but they have the same insecurities. They have the same doubts, concerns. I see it in education where students get so far, and then they go, oh, who am I to get top grades, and they stop working. In businesses, I see business leaders get so far and then one day, one day they stop and go, oh, I'm responsible for all this. I better start playing safer. And that's not what got them to where they got. So they start behaving differently. And that's when things either plateau and procrastinate or even slip backwards. And so they've, they've got exactly the same problems. 
you know, the naughty kids sit at the back as they do in chief exec groups and conferences. The eager bunny sits at the front with the pen and paper, eagerly scribbling down everything. So, and we all, we both know that those two groups are going to use nothing at all anyway. It's always the ones in the middle who was, who was facilitators like us. We give hardly any attention to those in the middle who, as long as we serve them, will get us. You know, the, the 5% at the back and the 5% at the front. Then they're either, A, the ones at the front are so enthusiastic that they think everybody's awesome. They think they're awesome and they just like making notes. The ones at the back, they think everyone's an idiot. They're an idiot. They don't like anything. They don't even like themselves. And <laughs> the truth is that if you give your energy and, and purpose to 90% in the middle, you'll get 95 because the nutters at the front will love you anyway. I can really relate to that. Dave, and particularly when you talk about the imposter syndrome, and it's one of the points that I keep trying to make to people is that we put people on pedestals, but they're just humans like you or me. And I think it's really powerful to to picture that successful leader, that CEO, as an insecure school kid, not really knowing their way in the world, because that's exactly who they are, but just a few years older. What have the kids that you have talked to taught you? And do you think that there is value? in business leaders actively seeking to connect with young people and how should they go about that? Oh, that's a, that is a doozy of a question, mate. I'm glad you paused and thought about that one. What have young people taught me? They've taught me that life's too short to drink bad wine. All we can do is work with what in front of us. I remember as a kid thinking that the five years of high school were the longest of my life. And yet you and I know five years is a heartbeat. <laughs> five years is a heartbeat in someone's life so they live in the moment you know if they're high they're high if they're low they're low their heart is on their sleeve they absolutely live in the moment and i think as adults we we get so sucked into the 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 good and the bad and we get bogged down with it and we stop behaving as who we are we stop behaving as who we are and we we try to be something that other people think we ought to be. And I I mean I, I refuse to grow up now. You know, I can't remember which comedian said it, but I've nicked it off him. And you know, I just uh, I tried to be mature and it was the worst 30 minutes of my life. And and so people I'm really okay if I'm not right for a client, because that client has to want someone who's very real. If they want just a shiny suit with white teeth and pointy fingers, I am not that person for them. And so they've taught me to be unrelentingly real. And I, I, I try to be that both in work and in my personal life. And in terms of communication, I think that I interviewed a guy called Tim Watts. Tim Watts was CEO and founder of Pertemps Recruitment. At the time of interview, it was Europe's second largest recruitment and employment company. A remarkable entrepreneur. And the guy was as mad as a fish. I mean, absolutely bonkers. Loved him to pieces in the interview. And he was saying how whenever he wants a good idea, he doesn't hire PR and marketing companies to go and do research for a quarter of a million quid. He goes into local high schools and sits down in a class with kids and his team and asks them questions. And he says, they're genius. They'll come up with remarkable ideas because they're fearless. And that's the word. They've taught me to be fearless. They take the brakes off. Yeah. That we learn to apply as we get older and older. You talked earlier about stop taking risks. Yeah. Uh, and, and and they teach us not to do that again. So going back, you've talked about one leader there who goes into schools and asks, asks for their input and their insight. You know, should more leaders be doing that? And is it, what are the different ways that as leaders we can connect with younger people and get that inspiration of a different type, that reverse mentoring? Yeah. Well, mentoring is a subject you're hot on. You know, you're the go-to guy on that subject. And I think, A, leaders need to be mentors at a level that they're currently not stepping up to. They're more concerned with protecting their position and the value profit share of the business rather than genuinely leading the business and nurturing the leader who's going to take over from them. But also, young adults need adults to show them the way. And I don't want to date this interview, but since lockdown four or five years ago, people have gone into their shells and 
young people have looked to our generation for how to respond to this awful situation. And we've been just as scared and as unknowing as they have. So young adults have withdrawn. And now we're seeing that. And I don't want to sound like every, every other TV breakfast news show that or magazine show that has people on going, oh, young people are really struggling. Mate, I see it. It breaks my heart. I want to bring them all home with me. The stuff I'm seeing now is at a level I have never witnessed before, and it's our fault. It's our generation's fault. And so leaders need to communicate with young people, not just to make sure that our young people are safe, well, and thriving, but because that generation are going to be so different coming into the workplace and employment that, I mean, wow, you talk about Gen Z and millennial. There is a tsunami of change coming into the workplace that leaders just are not prepared for. And like other generations, this one will not conform. They won't just take orders. They'll take leadership guidance, but they will not take orders. If you, if you hack them off, they will walk and, and they won't care. They just won't care. But all they're interested in is feeling good. And if, the, if that can be wrapped around a goal for them and everyone to succeed and be happy, they will fly and change this world in a way not seen since the Industrial Revolution. The danger is they won't, because all they do is seek approval and comfort and acceptance. And it is our job as leaders to make sure that we are communicating and under- listening, listening more than talking to them. Proper listening, just shutting up and listening, seeking to understand. Create a greater impact as a mentor, discover how to find the right person to mentor you, and make sure that mentoring thrives in your organization with the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. Andy Lapata and Dr. Ruth Gotian's new book comes out in May and is available to pre-order now. So effectively, we need as senior leaders to connect with younger generations for the flow going both ways. We need to be there to learn from them to understand them, to prepare ourselves for that tsunami that you talk about that is coming. And we need to be there to support them, to mentor them, to guide them, and to lift them from where they've been. And if we do it properly, as I said, they could change the world in a way not seen since, positively change the world in a way not seen since the Industrial Revolution. But if we don't, we've got problems. There ain't going to be people paying our pension when we retire, mate. <laughs> well, I'm aware of that. Well, I did want to touch on that. I brought it forward because what you had said in your earlier answer about the impact of education on you just raised that to the front of my mind. But I do want to go back to where we were. If people can rewind in their minds to a quarter of an hour or so ago in our conversation, because we were talking about how smart goals has been misquoted, miscredited, misinterpreted and how it's smart steps to massive goals rather than smart goals, and how you learn this by going out yourself and asking highly successful people about how they set and achieve their goals. So can you summarize what you've learned and what David Heiner's steps to massive goals looks like for people? Wow. Okay. In a nutshell, there are either systems and processes or thoughts and feelings and emotions wrapped around goal setting, personal development in general. And you will find a lot of people either having a great system and process or great thoughts, behaviors, and feelings and emotions around stuff. But top achievers just tend to have these two perfectly matched. So just as important as a really simple goal setting model process is how they think and behave whilst they're doing these steps. It is the two combined that cause the magic to happen. So if you think of the children's playground joke, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? That is the process for massive goals. You write a dirty, great big to-do list of all the things you can think of that you'd have to do if you're going to achieve your goal. You prioritize the steps, and then I call it go rhino. You, You give everything you've got whilst your time, energy, motivation, and resources at its greatest to the difficult, challenging, or scary steps first. Eat the sprouts on your to-do list. So every single day, five to 10 minutes a day, eat the sprouts on your to-do list. That way, you don't put the hard things off till the end. You don't have the short ego boost of just crossing things off on your to-do list because they're easy to do. 
because then at the end of the day, when your time, energy, motivation and resource is at its least, you've still got the Sprout Street and you'll say, manana, I'll do it tomorrow. Can I just interrupt you for a second? Because about half of our uh, listeners are in America and and we have listeners around the world. I don't know how well Eat the Sprout on your to-do list translates beyond, I don't know if it's just a very UK thing. So maybe you could explain that as well as explain Go Rhino because everyone talks about you in, in terms of Rhino and I think maybe just expand on that a little bit as well. Okay, so eat the sprouties, do the scary step. T- you know, Eat that horrible thing on the plate at Sunday dinner that your parents made you eat and you only wanted to do is push it around the plate or give it the dog under the table. So do the thing you've been putting off doing. What is the most important or scary task on the to-do list that will take you closer every day to the massive goal and do it. If it's making that call, make the call. If it's sending that email, send the email. If it's create a database, create the database. Whatever the test task is you've been putting off doing, do it. And do it willingly and full on. I mean, to the best of your ability. That And, and I call that go rhino. And going rhino is uh, something our American friends will love because one of their authors, Scott Alexander, a crazy American author, 1982, I think he wrote this bizarre personal development book called Rhinoceros Success. And the only reason I quote the book and quote Scott directly is because when I ask top achievers, is there a book that genuinely has changed your life? Not, oh, that's just a great book. I mean, you buy 10 copies and give them out everywhere you go. Book, changed my life. The most common quoted book above any biography, autobiography, business strategy book at all by a country mile is Rhinoceros Success by Scott Alexander. And in the book, he talks about how a very tiny percentage of people go rhino, see what they want, charge at it. And what most people do is stick around trying to be part of the herd, just fitting in, and we strive for and achieve mediocrity. So five to 10 minutes a day, Have the courage to go rhino. Give something the very best of you. And you will annihilate the scary tasks whilst your motivation is at its greatest at the start of the day or start of the massive goal. Therefore, if everyone else is doing the opposite of that, their day or massive goal can only get harder, whereas ours will only ever get easier. And you might say, Dave, this is semantics. It's tri-semantic motivation. This is how top achievers perceive it. Everything they've told me, everything is simple to understand and do and apply, but they do it relentlessly, consistently, and with a smile on their face. So effectively, we're taking the to-do list, the classic to-do list. We're starting with the hardest thing first. Yeah. How does that all fit? How do the, these are the smart steps, I guess. How do these smart steps yeah. fit within that massive goal? How do we piece it all together so that it's a really strategic approach towards hitting that goal? We know that we're continuing in the right direction. And now we come into sort of the, what I call the, the business end of it. So what we do is we come up with a list and maybe we'll have a little group, peer group around us, be it friends, colleagues, mastermind group, who will help us come up with ideas of things we should be doing. But the most important thing is, A, we prioritize that list. So number one being the most scary and or important to your success. Number the whole list and then do the most important tasks first. Now, how else do you come up with ideas as to what to put in the pyramid? There's a Team GB former world champion athlete, gold medal winner and very successful entrepreneur called Chris Akabusi, Keze Akabusi, MBE. And Chris gave me permission to share one of his most favorite quotes, which is, don't look up to people, look into them. And that is so simple, but incredibly powerful to people. So if you, for example, want to double your business in a tech industry, I would say to any leader, Don't sit on your laurels and do not be arrogant enough to assume, A, either you know it all, or B, no one would help you because they're your competition. Chris Akabusi would say, go and track down whoever he or she is at the very highest level, and that is important, the very highest level. Don't go to average people because at best you'll get average information. Track them down, hunt them, stalk them, go through their bins, find out, buy them lunch, dinner, 
ask them to coach or mentor you on the specific subject of how did you do your business in the tech industry? How do you give presentations? How do you set goals? How do you manage your stress? Whatever the thing is you need to achieve, track somebody down at the very highest level with that skill set. They will tell you what to put on that to-do list. If it's any help, I can tell you three or four things that very, very commonly when I say, what's on your to-do list to top achievers they'll tell me this is always on it and yeah, go for it number one much to many people's frustration because they think it's fluffy woolly nonsense is purpose and the most important phrase here i learned from an emotional intelligence authority was that you must have a reason why you must achieve this goal that is bigger than any insecurity or excuse you've got and and then to me that takes the fluffy right out of it You've got to have a reason why you or your business, if it's a personal goal, you and your family or your team, have got to achieve this goal that is much bigger than any fear or insecurity. Basically, you're removing your excuses. Second thing is, the goal must be massive and it must be fun to do. If it isn't fun, you're not going to do it. Find a, find a reason to commit. So you'll find that the people who are more likely to finish their first marathon and not your Sunday park runners. They're people who have signed up to a cause that burns in their heart, and over their dead body are they not going to finish that marathon, and they'll raise more money as well. I've already mentioned five to ten minutes a day in emotional intelligence. It's called the third or 1% rule. In five to ten minutes every day, Andy, if all of us can just increase our productivity, attitude, and performance by a measly third or 1%, compounded over a year, that is exponential growth. And you'll be amazed what people can achieve in five to 10 minutes a day. Absolutely remarkable. In education, we've had students got four grades in four weeks, four grades in four weeks, just absolutely going rhino and having fun with the things that they were previously scared of in lessons. It's remarkable results. So you publicly commit to it and five to 10 minutes a day, go after it. Look, into people go and get coaches and mentors but please avoid generic coaches go to people who have got the specialist skill set if i wanted to learn a strategy for a corporate team to network or help leaders understand how and why they should be mentoring people i'd be coming to andy lapata and I, he wouldn't get to the car i'd be around his uncle like a jack russell it, he would not be able to say no to me track down people at the highest level and get the information you need for your to-do list from the people who have been there and walked before you. The, the 10 minutes a day, the five to 10 minutes a day is, is really important. And, and this feels like a mundane example compared to school kids accelerating at that level. But I have what I call the 10 minute test when I'm teaching or talking about LinkedIn. So I, I have so many people that I work with that, that are frightened of using LinkedIn or can't find the time. And I say to them, spend 10 minutes a day on it. 10 minutes a day on your phone, go to the home screen, scroll through posts, like, comment, and share on three. And, and I'd say if you did that every working day, you'd be way ahead of your competition yeah. because they're not doing it. You don't need to be spending an hour here and an hour there, five or 10 minutes a day. And, and there's so many things, as you've just illustrated, we can, we can break down like that. As an aside, you talk about Chris Akabusi. There's a, a nice little story that just shows it goes to your your point earlier about service. So I used to be a massive athletics fan. You know, I'm a big sports fan anyway. And when I was a teenager, we had three or four athletics meets, world athletics meets at Crystal Palace in Southeast London. Uh, so I used to go to every athletics meet at Crystal Palace and I used to collect autographs and I used to try and get all the top stars I got one autograph more than any others. I stopped asking for it, but he still gave it. Chris Hakabusi. And, and you compare it to some of the other big stars you couldn't get near uh, or who would walk past you and turn their, I, I won't name names, but global names yeah. would turn their nose up in the air or pretend to be someone else. When you, they're, they're globally famous. You know who they are. Chris would come every time and sign. You didn't even have time to say, I've got your autograph, it's all right, and snatch the, the program away. He was signing, and it, it just goes to that service. You know, And, and I, I've met Chris a few times since, and he was the first motivational speaker I saw, funnily enough, wow. um, at, at Chelsea Football Club many years ago. 
And uh, he is in that service space, particularly when he, he's doing that. Yeah. You, I was going to ask you, going very much to the theme of the podcast, about the role other people play in your success. You've pretty much answered that because you've said, go and find the right person, ask their advice, ask them to mentor you, ask them to coach you. And you touched on mastermind groups as well. Now, I am bound to have talked about mastermind groups on here before. It's one of the things I speak on, but I know you do as well and you run mastermind groups. I would love for you to share a little bit about masterminds now, both uh, for people who don't know what they are, because not every person who's listening to this has listened to this before or heard me talk about mastermind groups, and also for those who do and how they can make more out of it. Well, the, 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 I will happily talk about mastermind groups, but the first thing you said there, Andy, is really significant. You, you said about you know the role other people have played in mm. your success, and I'm now a believer that going alone is arrogance. I look back at anything at all since the age of thirty I've done of significance. Every single time, without exception, there have been people whose shoulders I've stood on, shoes I've walked in, and have helped me, and in some cases dragged me and kicked me and shoved me uh, into doing what I'm doing and given me the belief when I lacked it and gave me the push when I needed it. And so, yeah, I think it's the fact that we fear uncertainty and most people think they fear failure, but our mutual friend, Nigel Risner, one of the few things I genuinely always quote Nigel on is he says, people don't fear failure, they fear uncertainty. You give them certainty, they're fearless. And it's the same with change in business. People don't fear change. If you're driving change, you don't fear it. So drive that change. And as soon as we get our head around what's real, and what's real is that going alone is arrogance. You know, seek to collaborate, seek to get involved with the right people at the right time and masterminding is a terrific way of doing that for those who don't know masterminding is a name given to peer group support by a guy, a guy called napoleon hill who was a journalist and he wrote a very famous book in the world of personal development one of the classics called think and grow rich and he was hired by the industrialist Andrew Carnegie to interview America's wealthiest industrialists and on what made them tick and succeed. And one of the traits he noticed is that they have what he called mastermind groups, peer support, where you support each other and hold each other accountable to set and achieve big goals. Now, because I became a bit obsessed with mastermind groups, I wanted to know that if I'm going to speak about it, I better find out what it's based on. And much to my surprise, even though the whole world quotes Napoleon Hill as being responsible for mastermind groups, it wasn't from America and it wasn't Napoleon Hill or the American industrialists that started it. I have to say, Andy, I have to be very honest with people by saying that I am very open to the fact that they probably did start in ancient China, maybe India, Rome, Greece, back in the day. But I have not ever found anything in writing that suggests or reinforces as yet. The earliest reference I can find to this is something called the Lunar Society. And the Lunar Society were a group of industrialists, polymaths, and great thinkers of their time. They, they were a group of between seven and 16 men who used to meet when the moon was at its fullest to aid coach travel. And these people were seen as heretics and mad. They affectionately called themselves the lunatics. And <laughs> they used to meet in secret because they were seen as heretics. But for anyone who does know their history, their members included Darwin, Wedgwood, Dalton, Galton, um, Cadbury, even Benjamin Franklin used to travel from America for meetings, such was its prowess and importance. And they would meet in stately homes around the West Midlands, Birmingham, God's country. Andy. I was going to say, I was waiting for the Birmingham <laughs> <laughs> reference. And honestly, I fell off my chair when I was <laughs> this. And these wonderful, wonderful men changed the world forever. What they did effectively gave birth to the Industrial Revolution simple things that created global phenomenon and they were no better than you or i or anyone listening to this they were normal people at the time who dared to think and behave differently but then do the two things andy that most people run away from 
and especially in the British psyche and culture, they run away from the top achievers run towards, which is seeking support, asking for help, and seeking accountability. I was way too arrogant before the age of 30 to accept support or dare ask for help and certainly didn't like being held accountable. Well, to this day, I still don't like being held accountable. But I know in my personal life, I need support. I know in my business, I desperately need accountability because if I don't hold, if I don't have someone or some people holding my feet to the flame to make sure I do what I said I was going to do, then I get easily, oh, look, a pigeon. You know, I just, I'm looking out the window at squirrels and pigeons very, very easily or coming up with 50 ideas rather than doing that thing on the to-do list I promised myself I'd do. So we all of us in different parts of our life and business and our careers need support and accountability. Have you got the courage to go to the right person to ask for that help and to that right person to ask for accountability? Get a little peer group around you. Again, Andy, I bet you've already spoken about this, but make sure the people in your mastermind group are not your closest friends because the temptation is to surround yourself with people who are just like you and it just turns into a yes party where you're having great cakes, great biscuits, lovely coffee, and you're just agreeing with each other. You go, that was a nice meeting, but nothing gets done. Andy, for those listening to this, has challenged me in the past and hopefully I've challenged him in the past. Sometimes you have to be a good enough friend to someone for them not to like you very often. So if Andy was in my mastermind team and Andy said, I'm doing this this month and he hadn't done it, I wouldn't go, oh, well, Andy, I'm not serving Andy by doing that. I would serve him by looking him in the eye and go, and how's that working for you then, Andy? Saying you're going to do things and they're not doing them. Tell me the reason why you didn't get it done and then tell me how we can support you and hold you accountable to make sure it gets done this month. And hopefully I would make him squirm a bit and he may not like me for a couple of weeks, but I'm not serving Andy by going there, there, never mind, get it done next week. And the same for me. You know, I would have more respect for Andy even if I didn't like him for a couple of days if he hauled my feet over the flames to make sure I did what I said I was going to do. And the power of a mastermind group is that over a period of time, 12 to 18 months frequently is kind of the longevity of them, but that support, that accountability from people who are different to you, oh my days, the things people can achieve in a mastermind group. As you said, I facilitate little groups. We've had people go from startup to 150 grand turnover as a one-man band working from home as a consultant. We've had people double their turnover, triple their turnover. We've had people who said they were going to write a book and had three published within 12, sorry, 14 months. And I could go on and on. Ask yourself, what are the skills you're missing? Who's got those skills? Invite them to join a mastermind group. Meet on a regular basis and support each other and hold each other accountable. Thank you very much for that, Dave. I, I want to shine spotlight on one thing there that you did stress a lot, and I think it's so important because so often when I talk about masterminding or mentoring or just seeking support in any way, I, I hone in on the importance of getting fresh ideas, cognitive diversity, uh, different perspectives. What I don't always stress is the importance of accountability. And we were both at an event together on Monday I must have had the conversation at least twice, maybe three times with people who told me they were struggling to do something. And the reason they were struggling is that no one was holding them accountable to do it. And my advice in each case was who is going to, you know, find someone who is going to hold you accountable. All of these ideas about massive goals and smart steps, all these ideas about learning and listening from different generations, everything we've talked about today is fine. But if, you get these great ideas, but do nothing with them. You're going to stay mediocre. And it's the accountability that underpins all of it. And if you've got a peer group who are pushing you, that gives you that certainty that overcomes the fear. You know, uh, Andy, if you and four others once a month were going, come on, Dave, you said we're going to do this. Come on, let's do this. I'll come, I'll come round. I'll spend an hour with you and we'll get it done together. I'm not going to say no. And then I don't want to let anyone else down, let alone myself. So it gets done. You're absolutely right. We must overcome this insecurity we have around asking for support and accountability. On that note, 
thank you for your support on this. I hold you accountable for turning up <laughs> and I really appreciate you joining me. I said to you when I spoke to you the other day, why have I not invited you on the podcast before? That's my bad. It's been worth the wait, let's put it that way. And I think you've shared some great insights. So Dave, thank you very much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. My pleasure, Andy. Thank you. Well, I love that. I hope you did. I did promise you it would be wide ranging. And as I just said there, we talked about why smart goals don't work and how they've been misquoted and miscredited. And it's smart steps to massive goals. And I, I found Dave's journey and I've heard it before, and that's why I wanted him to share it, because I think it's very inspiring how David just took it upon himself to go out and reach out to these high achievers around the world and learn from them. And one of the things that David says quite often when I've heard him speak, didn't share today, so I think it's worth sharing, is that he reached out and they said yes. And so often we don't do things because we assume people won't say yes. But he just reached out and asked. And I th he mentioned a, a school kid that was mentored by... Uh, a, a US president, as I remember the story, they wrote and asked a question and they got a yes. If you don't ask, you're not going to get. And, and I think that, that lies at the heart of what a lot of what David shared today. We veered off into his journey in schools and very, very strong arguments about why we need to stay connected with younger people. And, and David made the point about the impact that millennials and Gen Zs have had in the workplace. It's something we talked about a lot on the podcast he said there's a whole tsunami of difference coming and we haven't talked about the next generation and, and currently we've got five or six generations in the workplace well that's just going to go up as the retirement age goes up so we're going to have more and more to deal with because the, i i believe personally and, and you'll know if you listen regularly that i've had a lot of conversations on this topic that the differences between generations are far more vast than they've ever been so we've not only got more generations coming to the workplace, but the gaps between us are bigger. And so we need those connect that connection as well. And then on to one of my favorite topics, which is masterminding. What I'll do is I have a tips book on masterminding as a PDF. We'll put that in the show notes for you to help you set up your own mastermind if it's new to you or you just want to get going. I'll ask David if he's got any resources he wants to share as well, uh, and we'll put those in the show notes so you can get a head start on getting that accountability and that support that David was talking about. So I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope you did. And please share it. Please let people know, rate and review. And whatever you do, join me again next week for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.